This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, hosting this edition of the Best of Radio Parallax, Graham Smith. I'm Graham Smith, sitting in for Douglas Everett, and this is a special Best of series of Radio Parallax. I'm sure some of you frequent listeners may have been worried that this show is going away forever, but rest assured, Radio Parallax will continue on, at least in some form. What I'm going to be doing here, for this quarter at least, is replaying some of the best and most topical interviews that we've collected over this show's 13-year history, giving them some context, new relevant information perhaps, if there is a particular interview you guys would like to hear being played again or would just like to be updated on, uh, please let us know. Send an email to info at radioparallax.com. Or if you'd just like to comment on the new format, tell me I'm doing a terrible job, anything like that, still want to hear it. Now, I can, of course, never fully live up to Doug's tremendous legacy, but I hope all you good people out there will uh, roll with me a bit. First up, I'm going to be playing an interview with prolific science journalist Sam Keen that originally aired in June 2011 about his then-new book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. It's a really good interview. I, I learned quite a bit. I happen to consider myself a, uh, a great purveyor of fun facts of all sorts, and I added quite a few great chemistry ones to my repertoire after listening. After that, I'll be playing an interview with Michael Pollan, which originally aired in October of 2007. Mr. Pollan is a noted journalist and one of the most influential figures in the food world, and the author of Food Rules, In Defense of Food, and The Omnivore's Dilemma. I'm playing this interview because he's going to be speaking at the Community Center Theater in Sacramento next Tuesday, September 29th. I, for one, am pretty bummed that I have school and can't go. Now, without any further ado, here is Douglas Everett speaking with Sam Keen. Writer Sam Keen works for Science Magazine in Washington, D.C. Mr. Keene's writings have appeared in New Scientist, Air and Space Smithsonian, Slate, The New York Times Magazine, and Mental Floss. And he's appeared on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, as well as On Point. Currently, his book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World, from the Periodic Table of the Elements, is a national bestseller. We found its blend of hardcore science, intriguing facts, human frailties, and downright delicious gossip to be an absolute delight. Thus, we're pleased to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Sam Keen. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, Mr. Keen, the periodic table sits at the back of chemistry classes and reveals so much about the world of chemistry and physics at one glance, if, if those are in the know. But for, for the people out there who ignored it in school, why is it such a remarkable summary of data? Uh, yeah, as you said, you know, everyone kind of remembers it from high school, but uh, not everyone remembers it fondly all the time. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable collection of data because you can look at it 
at a glance and understand how the elements, how the, the boxes, the individual elements on the boxes will react with each other. And you can tell their properties just by looking at it because elements in the same vertical column on the table have very similar properties. So it's just a clever way of organizing matter and keeping track of it that scientists can use, uh, as you said, to summarize a lot of information very quickly. Well, one fascinating aspect about the tail is that it, it, it does give people general rules that indicate how chemistry will go. But a lot of times in science, we learn a lot from the exceptions to those rules. And, and I, you made some note of that in the book about some of the oddities. Uh, uh, you mentioned specifically bismuth, which I took recently uh, with some Pepto-Bismol when I had an upset stomach. It's a medicine, yet it's surrounded on the periodic table by deadly poisons. Yeah, it is. It's probably one of the more misplaced elements on the table. If you look at the little corridor where bismuth sits. It's right next to lead, uh, polonium. It's in the same column, actually, <laughs> as arsenic is, and uh, a little beyond it are, are radon, some other radioactive poisons. But as you said, bismuth itself is completely benign. Uh, it's in Pepto-Bismol, and it's used in other cases to uh, kind of clear the body of poisons. So it's really unusual that this single element uh, for various reasons, uh, would suddenly appear down in Poisoner's Corridor, down there in the corner. <laughs> well, in, in researching the various elements, uh, as you did for the book, what, what facts surprise you the most, and, and what do you think uh, comes as the biggest surprise to your audience? The one story that really surprised me was the story of aluminum, just because it's an element that we're all very familiar with, that we all know from day-to-day -day use, but it really had an unusual backstory that uh, I didn't anticipate at first. Um, for a long time in the 1800s, aluminum was actually the most precious metal on Earth. It was worth far more than gold. It was worth far more than silver. And the reason why is that even though aluminum is very common in the Earth's crust, the most common metal, actually, it's always very tightly bonded to something in the crust, usually oxygen. So it's very hard to separate and get pure samples of it. And when scientists started to get pure samples, they were considered sort of miraculous. It's a very light metal, also very strong and attractive, though. Uh, and it became sort of a status symbol to have aluminum. Uh, the French actually used to keep these uh, Fort Knox-like bars of <laughs> aluminum and display them next to their crown jewels. And the Emperor Napoleon III... Uh, actually had a prized set of aluminum cutlery that he reserved for his most favored guests <laughs> at banquets, and the lesser nobility had to eat with gold knives and forks. And even the U.S. got into the game a little. The Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., down in the National Mall, uh, there's a six-inch pyramid of aluminum on the very top of it. And the idea was, in the 1880s when it went up, uh, the U.S. was kind of bragging a little, and we were saying we are such a, an up-and-coming industrial power that we can afford to put aluminum on our public monuments. <laughs> and I really thought that was a great story because, first of all, it was so unexpected, but it also shows how the, uh, the fortunes of the elements rise and fall over time and what's a very popular element in one time you know, in our day, has become sort of passe, something that's in pop cans and Little League baseball bats. So it was kind of a fun twist for an element that we all thought we knew so well. 
I noticed too that you used the British spelling al- aluminium rather than what we call aluminum, and I guess I guess it really is aluminium. Uh, everyone else in the world would call it alum- aluminium, yes, uh, <laughs> but in the U.S. because. Uh, the person who really made aluminum a big metal in the U.S., and in some ways around the world, uh, Charles Hall, he started Alcoa. He preferred the spelling aluminum, uh, partly because it sounded more like platinum, another classy metal. And so he decided he was going to push it as aluminum. And in the U.S. and almost nowhere else, um, it is aluminum. Again, yeah, the rest of the world would say aluminum. <laughs> Well, many, many people contributed to the assembly of, of the periodic table by discovering this or, this or that element. But you cite in particular the Russian Dmitry Mendeleev as the man who saw, I guess, most clearly saw a pattern in the data. And um, how was it that this, this Russian started to bring order from chaos? Well, uh, as you implied, there were a lot of people contributing to it. And there were actually six people six different scientists who came up with the idea of something like the periodic table. And of them, Mendeleev was actually the last one historically. So it's a little unusual that he's the one we associate so closely with the table today. But what Mendeleev was able to do is he was able to incorporate more elements into his table. He was sort of a, a specialist with the metals, which are very hard to classify because they look alike, they have very similar properties. Um, But he was able to distinguish between them and put them into their proper place. And what he also did that was remarkable was uh, he looked at some of the places where he couldn't find elements, and he predicted that new elements would be found. And when the new elements were found, and they had the same properties that Mendeleev predicted they would have, people were sort of astounded that someone sitting in his office all the way in Russia was able to see what these elements must be like. So he does deserve a lot of credit for the development of the periodic table, even though technically he wasn't the first one to discover something like the periodic table. Well, most people, I think, have the idea that science is very dispassionate, it's very focused uh, and directed, but, but since the discovery of an element brings a certain amount of fame to the discoverer, uh, it turns out that egos and even national pride got involved in some of these discoveries. Can you tell about some of the cases where scientists or nations even fought like kids in the schoolyard over, over who discovered what? <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite chapters in the book talks about a spat between a, some American scientists at the University of California at Berkeley and Russian, or so, at the time, Soviet scientists. Uh, And they were going after elements uh, that were heavier, the heaviest ones at the time, like 103, 104 elements around there. And there was a dispute over who had created which element first. And what they were really fighting about was the chance to name these elements, because the periodic table, you know, is hanging in every single science classroom in the world. (laughs) And so it's very prestigious to have the right to name the element when you discover it. And things got so bad uh, that this dispute over naming elements drug on for 30-some years. It actually outlasted the Cold War itself. It was a theater, a new theater for the Cold War in some ways, and then it outlasted it. And eventually they had to bring in sort of an international tribunal of chemists and have them decide the, the whole thing because they couldn't sort it out among themselves. Um, so, I, it, yeah, as you said, it just goes to show how much passion gets wrapped up in the discovery of elements, especially nowadays 
uh, because scientists might spend a decade or more, and at the end of their work, they might have five or six atoms of this element. So it's very hard to tell that they even exist. So there's a lot of room for interpretation, misunderstandings, things like that. You know, I have to jump in, and I do have one bone to pick over the periodic table. Uh, those elements that are okay. above uranium and plutonium, which, which must be manufactured basically in atom smashers, some of these things are found by sifting data, not by actually creating a lump of the stuff. And, and I guess I'm partial to the old charts back when I was in school that went up to 103, and, uh, and that was it. Now, now we're going beyond that, but these things are just like... Uh, no one can hold a, a piece of it out and say this is dubnium or rutherfordium or whatever. No, you, no one will ever be able to see these elements. You're exactly right about that. Um, and yeah, as you said, they're, they're basically the only place they exist is on computer readouts. Uh, they disintegrate so quickly that no one ever really has evidence, direct evidence of them. We're just looking at indirect evidence. So again, it becomes a question of uh, in what sense do these elements really exist? And, you know, some people uh, that I've talked to say they want to just get rid of the bottom of the periodic table and not include them. And, you know, there's a, there's some argument you could make for that, uh, but I'm sort of partial to them. I, I enjoy them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the other camp, but we can agree to disagree. <laughs> we need to take a short break. You're listening to the best of Radio Parallax. I'm Graham Smith, sitting in for Douglas Everett.